Welcome to the Purdue Basketball Podcast. I'm Elliot Bloom, joined by the voice of the Boilermakers, Larry Clisby. Episode 33 here on the podcast and a little bit of a different format today. We are going to be answering uh, listener emails. Uh, it's our big holiday extravaganza show. Uh, as we tape this here in the Boilerball Podcast Studios, uh, we can't wait to get to the after party. Sylvia's planned a tremendous, oh. a tremendous spread in yeah. the kitchenette area that we will be attacking here after the taping of yeah. this. Yeah. And we celebrate with our staff here at the Boilerball Podcast. And uh, we hope everyone out there is getting in the holiday spirit. So it's that time of year. As we uh, as we tape this, we're a few days away from uh, taking our break here uh, at uh, with Purdue basketball. We have one game left on this on the schedule here. So uh, we'll get right into it. We uh, we asked for some listener questions, and uh, they came pouring in. So I want to get to some of these first. Uh, Jason. Uh, emails and says he's a big fan and has a question of how the how your term Larry bullseye started and for fans that uh, that listen to games and uh, know Larry it's kind of one of his trademark calls um, and how uh, probably described as a big shot usually a three-pointer but a big shot that occurs during the game yeah, it's a three-pointer, and I've, I've found this year that uh, I've been a lot more judicious with it. I don't know why. I think it's because we make so many of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, we have, yeah. a te- we have a team that's well-known for hitting them, and when you have 19 in a game, which is the new team record, 19 bullseye, bullseyes gets a little redundant. So so I've become a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, selfish with them this year, and people have noticed it, actually. I've been... I've been told about it, but uh, to be honest with you, I stole it. I stole it off a, uh, and I wish I knew the guy's name because that's the only thing you can do when you steal something from somebody. At least you should give them the proper credit. But it was one of the Atlanta announcers uh, that I heard on uh, either TNT or back in those days, uh, what was W uh, TBS? TBS, right. Or... It was on some Atlanta radio station, but I heard an Atlanta guy, one of the Atlanta announcers, use it. I originally used Bingo, which was another one that I stole off a uh, Cleveland Cavaliers announcer, Joe Tate, but then I switched to Bullseye probably 20 years ago. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of cool that people do associate me with it, but I can't take credit for it. There's only one basketball term that I've ever invented yeah, and uh, that would be spank ball. And uh, and you you still say that on air? Yeah, right? I do. Yeah. yeah. So the the story behind um, spank ball is uh, this was probably uh, maybe pushing fifteen years ago now. There was a ball that came off. It, the spank ball is defined as when you shoot the ball from the wing, usually a deep shot, and you airmail the rim but you catch part of the opposite backboard so if you're on the left hand side three on the way it overshoots the rim and spanks off the opposite bank board opposite side of the bank board and usually will hit somebody in the head standing on the basket (laughs) because it's it's the surprise (laughs) of the rebounder it comes off so hard that it usually gets a portion of someone and and like most um inventions or sayings this was pure purely accidental yes exactly um we in fact i was doing the game with you back when i was uh doing some color commentary and the shot went up, and it caught us all off guard. I don't even know where we were at. I want to say we were at Minnesota. 
And uh, Larry says, shot on the way up. Boy, spank ball off that backboard. And so we all rolled with it. And we go to break. And I look over. I go, spank ball? What the hell is that? And so we are all laughing so hard. And Larry says, well, I don't know. It just seemed like a – and it was, a, it was. It was a great way to describe it. It spanks off that backboard and – so hard catches everyone by yeah. surprise and almost kills the rebounder. That's, right. that's what it is. Right. And it's amazing when, if we're watching film as a staff, and really I think the only people on staff that know, Coach Payne and I are pretty clued in to what a spank ball is. So if we're watching film as a staff or watching a live game, um, or it, it, has, it has happened in the middle of a live game on the bench, there will be a shot that goes up and does that, and Matt will turn and look at him and go spank ball out of the side of his <laughs> out of the side of his mouth, and it's it's kind of a the three of us I think probably get more joy out of it than anybody. But exactly. If we're watching a video or we're watching film and and a shot goes up and does that, you know, just the word gets uttered, spank ball, and we move but on. That's to something one. Else. That's one I can get credit for. So yeah, that's an original production but jason referenced obviously some of the great trademark sayings of other announcers slick leonard with the boom baby and harry carey holy cow and those kind of things and um you know i think that's probably what all the greats have one or most of them do anyway and uh it would be interesting to know some of those some of the other greats and and what they're how they got their well, I told so. a story i told this story and you've heard it before but i'll tell the audience of john staggerwald who was a Longtime sports anchor KDKA in Pittsburgh, and I just told them, I just did a feature with uh, four other announcers for the Indiana Business Journal here a couple of weeks ago, which was so much fun. Bob Lamy, Mark Boyle, Don Fisher, and and Howard Kelman. I told Howard Kelman the story because John Staggerwald, who was a college t- uh, roommate of mine, he and I, uh, he started his career at Wichita in AAA with Cubs as a baseball announcer. And uh, so Howard was familiar with him and knows him. But uh, John used to always tell a story that his idol was the great Bob Prince of the Pittsburgh Pirates. <laughs> and his his signature call was kiss it goodbye on a home run. And he'd say, yeah, it's way back, it's way back, kiss it goodbye. That was all Bob Prince. And, uh, I mean, he was legendary in uh, Pittsburgh and uh, nationally, actually. And uh, so... You know, John, I can remember John when, you know, he's, he's 23 years old and he's got his first game coming up with Wichita Cubs and he's he's just fussing over, what am I going to call a home run? I mean, you got to have a call. And he can't figure out, doesn't know what to Anyway, he starts his first, very first game, first batter, second pitch, elevates one towards the left field wall. He goes, it's way back, it's way back. Kiss it goodbye. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> but that would be hard to do if you've oh, grown up. If you your grown whole up, life, right? Yeah. And idolize a guy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, know, I remember. Uh, I think a lot of guys fall into this that I've noticed when they get into announcing on TV, and they're going to break. It seems like the best in the business is Bill Raftery, and he'll be able to send it to break, and he gets excited, and his voice goes up. And you, if you watch new guys to the to the position of the broadcast, they do the same thing. And I always say, like, hey, you can't do that. That's Raps. You, you can't do that. <laughs> no, like, that's you, no, his no, deal. No, no, no. You st- I mean, 
So it's amazing. Everyone that comes up steals something from somebody they've listened to their whole life. And right. You just do. And the amazing thing is, Elliot, I can uh, I can go through five, six, seven announcers when I was a kid that did all the game. I, you know, I remember them to this day. Joe Valicenti who did the Youngstown University Penguins. <laughs> uh, Jerry Healy, who did the Akron Zips. I mean, and I listen, I listen to all these guys. Gib Shanley with the Browns and Jimmy Dudley and Bob Neal with the Indians and then Joe Tate later with the Cavaliers and you got you listen to them all the time and you love them and you and you come up with them you're you're definitely going to use some of their trademark sayings. I uh, I worked at the at Kansas for a year in the interned in the athletics department as uh, in the sports information area and we had a there was a preseason NBA game in Kansas City and my boss at the time said. Uh, Hey, would you like to go work stats for KCAL, the California station that was? And the game was going to be between the Lakers and the Wizards. So he says, uh, KCAL needs two guys, so I'm going to go out and I want to know if you want to go with me. Absolutely. So we drive down to Kansas City, and it, it's what's now the Sprint Center. It used to be Kemper Arena. Um, was the locate was the basketball arena downtown KC? So we go down, we go pull up to the truck, and now I'm an intern making, you know. I'm making probably 400 bucks a month after taxes, and they're going to pay us 150 bucks oh, to yeah. do you know. So this, hey, this is a win-win. So they say, okay, we need two things. We need uh, one guy in the truck, and then we need one guy to keep stats for Chick Hearn courtside. And I look at my boss like, hey, now I know this is going to be your call because you're the boss, but I would give anything <laughs> to sit next to Chick Hearn and keep stats for him. He says, hey, you got it. So I walk in and there's Chick standing courtside and I mean I I wasn't super familiar with Chick Kern other than I you know I knew who he was and I knew his voice and everything. And so I sit down and I'm keeping stats for him, sliding him notes as game at the as the game's going on. But there was a rebounding play, I don't know what half it was, and he said, The big fella goes up and grabs the rubber chicken. <laughs> And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> but it was great. I mean, it was, oh, it was great. I mean, just so cool to, to be around him. And uh, that was towards the end of his career, but just what a, what a, well, what a cool experience. Well, people out there who aren't familiar with him, it would be, Chick Hearn would be the equivalent now to, uh, um, to uh, guy our, Dodgers. Our Dodgers. Just, just, uh, uh, just retired. Vince, uh, Vince Scully. Vince, Vince Scully. Chick Hearn was every bit as legendary yeah. with the Lakers as uh, Ben is with the Dodgers, and Johnny Most was with the Celtics. Right. So Chick Hearn was an incredible name, and uh, he actually continued to broadcast uh, games well into his mid eighties right. before he got sick and passed. And he would always he his call was always slam dunk, like he would always draw out that slam. Uh, but yeah, that was just it was really cool. And then the other broadcasting story, uh, story that was really cool for me was when I was a student here at Purdue, um, and Purdue football got going with Coach Tiller. We played in Coach Tiller's second year, second season. So we came, we beat Notre Dame here, right. his first year, obviously his second game at Purdue. Then we go up to uh, South Bend, his second season, and NBC needed somebody to keep stats in the booth. For the announcers, so I got the call on that one, and the great Dick Enberg was calling that game, and just couldn't have been a nicer person. I walked in there, and he had a hat. Oh, here, here, give, give me a hat. Signed it. Took pictures with me. I mean, it was just so cool. And uh, 
it, it's it's great when the when the greats that you idolize then when you get around them and they're they're that good. Oh yeah, absolutely. That that when puts they, it over when they the really top. when they really treat the uh, younger people nice. I had a uh, my start here in the late seventies. I was with Henry Rosenthal WSK, and I got a chance to interview M. Berger. Was that time doing the NBC Game of the Week and got to interview him. And I was the same way, you know. I was I was thirty years old and. You know, I was shaking with the prospect of just talking <laughs> right, to him, let, right, alone, yeah. let alone him being nice. But he was so gracious on the air with me and stuff and made it sound like he and I were old buddies and, you know, did did the appropriate stuff and was very, very uh, nice to be with him. Dick just retired last year. He was actually the voice of the uh, California Angels here yeah. in the last part of his, uh, his California Angels now, isn't it? Uh, and yes, Anaheim Angels. Yeah. Well, you see, and the we do see, uh, we do see people when they come here and tape live with us. We see the nerves when they get around Larry. Same effect. <laughs> you get around legendary announcers, and you, the nerves. Well, I have in. to say, I have to say now, Elliot, uh, Elliot, and I are close friends uh, based on our relationship, and not only broadcasting, but him originally being SID and all that, but. Yeah, he has his favorites. I have my favorites, but two of his incredible favorites, without question, is Brent Musburger, who is is incredibly legendary, and uh, and then of course Bill Rafferty, who you yeah. just uh, idolize. And we we had that chance to do that podcast last year with Bill, and I, I have to admit to anybody who wants to hear this, he was, I mean, he was just fantastic. I mean, just fantastic to be around him. And you know, he was a coach. He you know he he became a self made broadcast right as a as a color guy with all these uh, uh broadcast over the years but uh, man that was because we asked really we elliot asked him for just 20 minutes of his time give us 20 minutes bill and he's oh well, sure eh? and he had someone bring him over i think it was dick bossing when yeah. he brought him over yep. and uh Dick knew that he was on a time limit, and we could not get him to shut up. Yeah, he I mean, kept saying, you got time for one more? Got time for one more? <laughs> and we were like, absolutely. <laughs> we just sat back and said, you you talk as long. And he went an hour and a half with us. It yeah. was unbelievable. Yeah, if you get a chance to go back and uh, and listen to that one, it is well worth it. It's not uh, – we talk a little bit about last year's team, so it, it feels maybe timed or dated maybe a little bit. But for the most part, it's Bill telling just – tremendous stories and it's uh well worth the listen it was one of the one of the highlights uh, uh for us since we've been doing this so. hey we just went 20 minutes on one question right <laughs> let's move on right, right. <laughs> well this next question uh is uh you you actually called it because i said this question comes from former boilermaker player steve reed the great uh, uh steve reed was a guard force uh that was on the free throw line when bob knight threw the chair um, and was later than Larry's color commentator for many years. Several years, yeah. Um, so Steve uh, Steve writes to us, and it was nothing in the email except one line. What hair coloring product are you using, Larry? <laughs> <laughs> so what I said, so Larry says, we get any questions? I said, yeah, we got a bunch. I said, we got one from your buddy Steve Reed. He goes, I know what that one was. Did he ask my hair color? <laughs> so obviously... There's an inside story here, so what's that all about? Well, the inside story is that every time he'd see me, and I, I wouldn't gray at the time, and we're talking 20 years ago now. And, and Larry's still not gray. And uh, and he says, now, you know, 
did you get your hair cut today? And did she put any color in it? And I said, I don't color my hair, Steve. Now, the, the, the truth of the matter is, I wear a goatee and sometimes have a full beard and uh, I color my beard because uh, my beard is white. There's no question about it. And so I, I try to be, but I try to basically get my beard to match my hair. And uh, But I have noticed, and uh, I'll be 71 in February, I, I have noticed with great consternation that the silver is coming in and uh, I'm, I'm hey, going to have to live with it. But you get to 71 until you start getting a little yeah, salt and that silver, pepper. But that's I've never, never, ever, one single time ever colored my head of hair. All right. Steve, there you go. <laughs> and I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you that email, Larry, so you can reach out to Steve because I know you guys you guys probably want to catch up. Our next question comes from a good friend of ours, Ernie, over in Ohio, and Ernie Ernie V. Ernie v. Now Ernie is a is a dear friend, and and we'll give you the backstory on that. But he says uh, very much enjoys the podcast. Dave, the Dave Shellhouse talk was his favorite, and that was a really good one, really good one of our our favorite as well. Um, he has a uh, question about uh, he has a theory that he wants to pass along on offensive rebounding and it has to do with the fact that with our ball screen defense um, there's a couple times when basically two guys are on one player which then uh, creates a a uh, disadvantage on the glass and uh, he's saying that uh, he would rather see the defense played like that knowing that we're going to give up a little something on the offensive glass. And I know exactly what he's talking about. We see it time and time again, and we've talked, coaches talked repeatedly about if this team's got a weakness, it's when we get we get beat up a little bit on the glass in terms of uh, other teams are able to get offensive rebounds against us. And I think Ernie's got something. There's something to Ernie's point about part of it is the way we guard people. Um, but Ernie's, Ernie's point is he likes the defense, and he would rather us play that way than uh, – and give up a little something offensively. Well, you know, and also you have that, uh, uh, Rob and I talked about this a little bit uh, against Butler. Um, one thing when we have Matt Harms in the game, for example, and Matt now, you know, he likes to block shots, and he gets he gets excited to block shots, and sometimes we'll forget to, you know, to um, screen out his man and go to help on the block, and if he misses it, it does lead for a wide open opportunity, either on a missed shot where he can actually affect the flight of the ball, but there's always someone open on the back side, and they'll get it a lot of times and put it back in, or, or they can pass it to that guy and get a layup too. So that, that's just a matter of experience there. But there, but there is some truth to that. I mean, and, you know, we guard it so well. Uh, Purdue guarded so well. I always say we. I'm to the point now. I'm saying we all the time now because I'm not really an acting. We're all journalist. we're all a big, not, we're all a big family. I'm here. not an acting journalist anymore. <laughs> that's for sure. But uh, uh, that that that's pretty interesting um, that that we have given. But we gave up uh, 18 offensive rebounds on uh, Saturday and had 18 turnovers and won by 15. That that's almost unheard of. Some of some of those rebounds on Saturday too were our defense was so locked in. There were a few were. air balls there. Yeah, exactly. Spank ball type shots that uh, air ball is always rebounded by the shooting team. It, always, it's amazing. <laughs> it's it? amazing 95%. how that works. Yeah. 
Ernie concludes his email and says a book that has affected his life is uh, entitled I'm Okay, You're Okay. And I wasn't familiar with this book, so I did a little research. It's a um, book that was published in uh, 1969, a self-help book by Thomas Anthony Harris, and uh, sold over 15 million copies. Wow. So it seems like, uh, Ernie, you weren't the only one that uh, was a big fan of that book. So Ernie did... Uh Ernie did something for us last year. He lives over there in the uh, Dayton area and uh, in Ohio. Uh, big golfer. Um, somehow, someway became a Washington National fan. Uh, that uh, came through uh, a close friend of his who has a son that's in their system, and so he rich for the Nationals. And uh, he kind of adopted me on our trip to uh, Spain. Yep. So he was my bus mate. Anytime we traveled on the bus, he was next to me and got to get to know him real well. Pharmacy guy, retired, and really, really great. But what he did last year was spectacular. Was uh, spectacular. That would be a John 9 expression. <laughs> um, he came uh, all the way over from there to just come to the last coaches show of the year and uh, wish us well and came over the stack pickle last show of the year and traveled all the way over just for I said what are you doing here he's in the audience said, just thought I'd come over that's fantastic give, Ernie, you, give you some some support Ernie's a great guy he always uh, he reaches out quite a bit um, and listens to all the podcast and uh, Larry and Ernie talked so much baseball on that Spain <laughs> trip you could always count on those bus rides hearing some baseball being talked and uh, was really a, was really enjoyable to get to know him uh, on that trip had a blast with him uh, our next question comes from Sean, and Sean is uh, brings up some recruit recruits, and uh, we can't talk specific specific recruits, uh, Sean. But he did have a question about the general five star recruits, and how um, we can go about increasing our, I guess, regularity of landing those type players. Um, and I will say, Sean, that recruiting is. I've never seen two recruiting scenarios that go down the same way. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, anytime somebody asks uh, me about recruiting, it's everyone is unique in their own way and has a, its your, you know, own unique set of circumstances. Um, I will say that uh, with five-star guys, um, obviously uh, a lot more difficult because the interest from, you, you name the program that comes. And at the end of the day, I think, Anytime recruiting, and I say this to our, our fans all the time when they say, ask about different guys, why we didn't get this guy or that guy. There's always a backstory, first of all. There's always a lot of things out of our control. But second of all, fans, and, I don't, and I'm not just saying this about Purdue fans. I would say this about Kansas fans, Kentucky fans, yeah, any, any fan, Minnesota fans, Northwestern fans. You see your team through your colored glasses. So Purdue fans are always going to see Purdue differently than an Ohio State fan, a Michigan fan, and an 18-year-old kid. So the difference is, while you, you see all these great things about us, you don't see the great things about other places, like an 18-year-old would. So if a kid comes down to Purdue in School X and he picks School X, in your mind, how can that be? And in the kid's mind, it's completely different because he's got no 
affiliation or love, or most times, no affiliation to Purdue. So I would just, I would always pass that along to fans when it comes to recruiting because sometimes it's hard um, to put yourself in that kid's shoes. Man, you mentioned, um, I always talk about it in this way, Elliot. They, every year in high school basketball, there's about, technically, there's five guys, five out of thousands. There's five guys that, or what uh, Fred Akers would call a uh, difference maker, <laughs> yeah, or a game changer. Yeah, there really is. There's there's no more in that. You think there are. Now there's another group of guys, another 15 guys that are going to get five stars next to their name. That one out of those 15 is going to end up being an NBA player and have a good career, and maybe another two or three are going to play in the NBA someday. But then the rest of them are going to fall by the wayside and do what everybody else does. It's a half one it's a half a one percent game. But it I realize that people will always say there's no excuses. You should be able to recruit anybody that you can talk to. But the fact is you're talking about years and years of of uh, ritual here. You're talking about five or six programs, blue blood programs, and everybody knows who they are. Duke North Carolina, Louisville, UCLA, Kansas, you know, put Connecticut in there. Where has Connecticut gone since they won that national title coming out right. of uh, the Jim Calhoun era? They won right away with right. his players, correct? Yeah, with all and, uh, and, uh, and And since that time, where have they been? Where's, where's UConn been? So what happens is you get t- – and uh, who, who's not going to want to play for Mike Krzyzewski? who's not going to want to play for Rick Pitino, who's now gone, who doesn't want to play for those type of programs. And the other thing is, we're talking about 20 guys. And so let's have six programs there. Are we are we mentioned every day in the same breath as those guys? No, but we have been a consistent top 20 program for for years and years and years here. Right. And uh, and I know people want us to take the next step, but the, but the thought of – a five-star wanting to be his top choice it really depends on who he likes coming up, and who's and who's whispering in his ear. And a lot of kids, a lot of kids will get to this point where, you know, hey, I like this school or I like that school, but you know, everybody keeps saying, well, no, nah, you should be thinking about going here right. or going right. there. So, whose decision really is it? And there's a lot of people who make those decisions. I, I realize. Some people will say, well, you know, there's no excuse never to be able to compete. They used to talk about that and paying people. Well, got $8 million spending. Pay what Saban gets paid. Well, you know, yeah, you have, there, there sometimes has come down to being, you know, legitimate here. You have to try to figure it out. So am I giving you excuses? I probably, in your mind, and those people have that type of feeling, uh, there, there's no excuse for ever not getting, but yeah, there really is. So you just have to deal with well, it. Well, it's also reality. I would say this: um, if Etwan Moore had committed to North Carolina, I bet he would have made the McDonald's All-American game, and I bet he would have been a five-star. Absolutely. He commits to Purdue, and they keep him right at twenty-nine, and that's just the way it is. And you will continue, and and. Um, do coaches pay attention to rankings somewhat? 
Uh, I can tell you for a fact that Coach Painter could care less about the rankings, the recruiting rankings. Um, because for that very reason, there's a lot of manipulation that goes on. There's a lot of, uh, you know, a kid commits the Duke. Well, he must be a four or five star. So that's where we're going to rank him, regardless of talent. There's been many a player that's gone to some of those schools that have not been worthy of a All-American tag or a McDonald's All-American tag. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there's a lot of them are really good. Um, but that's part of what goes on. And then the other part is what we saw unfold in the fall with the FBI stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on out there. And um, we talked about it on this podcast, I think, once, and, I, and Coach Painter addressed it in the media. But when all that stuff was going down, there's not a coach in America that slept better that night than Matt Painter. I can tell you that. Um, there was no, there was uh, never a moment when, um, when all that stuff was happening that we need to think in the back of our mind, oh boy, uh, the guy, the guy runs the, the cleanest program in America. You can tie him, you can't beat him when it comes to that. And I think there's a lot to be said for that part of the, that part of it, and having the integrity, especially when you're dealing with young people, because at the end of the day, um, in addition to winning games in basketball, this is about us educating and putting young men out into the real world that can become great citizens and I would put our track record in that up against anybody. Another another thing too to consider is um, you know when you when you see a great player and uh, I, I really believe that there's a lot you know just do the math all you have to do is the math and if you're getting a player that's ranked 150 and in you're getting a pretty darn good player. Right, right, know? absolutely. If you're getting a top 100 player in this country, uh, there's 351 Division One playing schools, <laughs> right? And I'm going to tell you, there's a whole lot of guys that can play. No, Ralph and I were talking. Ralph Taylor, one of our broadcast partners, and I were talking. I talking about it on the air. What a lot of people fail to realize is this: they talk about, you know, I always tease them about when you played, which was in the mid '60s, late '60s. Uh, you know, the game was different, obviously, for obvious reasons. It has, you know, changed dramatically. But the talent has, too. And he said, you know, but back in those days, you know, it was, it was a lot tougher to be able to play for certain schools because, you know, it wasn't like today where you had so many opportunities. I said, yeah, but here's the difference. Then the World War One or two, there was ninety million people in the United States. There's now three hundred and thirty million. Right. There's a lot bigger. Right. There's a lot bigger pool of people. Yep. yep. And that means you got a lot bigger pool of really good players. And you'll see every year. We see it all the time with the, some of these uh, what we call mid majors, or even the ones that aren't really thought of very well. Every darn team we play has somebody on it. Oh, there's it's no a doubt. Pretty good player. And so you really, you really never know. And then, and then you think about the NBA draft, and, and you're looking at uh, 60 guys right. get drafted out of all this mess. So, but you know, I always tell this story about when I saw that class with Hummel, Martin, Etwan Moore, and Juwan Johnson. And if you remember, they used to play, you know, the Indiana All Stars, and they we played an exhibition game over here at uh, Mackey Arena, and those four guys were yep. involved. And I wasn't, I wasn't so enthralled about individually who they were. I wanted to see what they did collectively. And, man, I'm telling you, I just sat there in the audience with no preconceived notion of anything, and I watched for 10 minutes. And I couldn't, get, I couldn't wait to get on my phone to say, we got a game changer coming. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, a game changer because every one of those guys 
knew how to play the game, knew how to play together, knew knew, knew the nuances of, of playing basketball. Right. And that and that sure certainly showed out. And then when you added them to guys like Grant and Kramer and that group, you know, that was really great to see. But you know what you know what they look like when they're out there. Just sometimes you can't get them. Right. No doubt about and it. And like Simmons, I watched him the other night for the Sixers. The guy cannot shoot a jump shot. And I watched him in a game get 40 points without hitting a jumper. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> he had about 13 assists, too. And he didn't go anywhere big. He went to LSU, but there was a reason, I think. Yeah. A couple yeah. of reasons. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Our next question comes from Alan. Alan uh, wants to know, uh, he says he has not missed a single episode of the podcast. And uh, we Thank appreciate you. that, Alan. Thanks for listening. Um he was. Uh, he wants to compare Coach Katie and Coach Painter, not in respect to coaching style, but respect to some of their uh, habits off the court. Um, he's heard us reference Coach Painter many times as a student of the game, and wants to know how Coach Katie was similar, and how was their interaction with support staff different. Alan, I'll say this: that, uh, and I, Larry would probably agree. We've probably been fortunate enough to work with and for. Um, two of the best uh, ever in terms of how they treat people around their program. Um, college basketball is filled with stories, mostly horror stories, of how coaches treat people around them. And I don't want to paint all coaches in with one brush no, and, no. and say that. I'm certainly not not saying that. But when you're in a highly stressful um, profession, a highly competitive profession. Um, sometimes certain coaches have a hard time turning it off and on <laughs> from you know the huddle from the from the court to then behind the scenes and in locker rooms and offices and things of that nature. Um, that being said, Coach Painter and Coach Katie are as good as it gets when it comes to dealing with uh, the support staff. Um, Coach Katie was uh, always um, very level-headed. Not to say that these guys can't have a bad day every now and then because we all can, uh, including Larry and I. But just great to work with, and always uh, treated us tremendously. So, two best, uh, you know, that's that's the greatest blessing I've ever had in my job that I've had uh, thirty-eight years with those two guys. I mean, think about that. And uh, I didn't. Uh, I worked as a backup when uh, when um, Fred House was here, followed by Lee Rose. So I, I had very little contact with either man. I didn't go to practice. I didn't have the association that I've had with uh, Coach Katie and Coach Painter, but uh, I consider, uh, you know, I love Coach Katie and consider him a father figure, and even though he's only 10 years older than I am, and uh, <laughs> uh, learned so much from him, and I and I consider Matt Painter a very close friend. I mean, it's, um, and that's hard sometimes because I, yeah, you know, I'm our announcer, and I have to, you know, I have to deal with these guys, and I, I brought up that point of doing this uh, special at the IBJ and you know, with these other announcers, and I was talking about that, that you have this, so the, the greatest part of my job is that I have the emotion of it. I have the same emotion as if I played. It isn't the same as playing, but it's the feeling is the same, or as if I coached. The only difference is I can I can probably separate myself a little bit quicker than the rest of them can, but I told that I told that story uh, in this magazine article with uh, Mike Lepresti about uh, Rick Ray mm-hmm. and being out in Las Vegas after we lost to Wofford and then got out to Las Vegas and lost. And I walk into this 
giant buffet that has more food than any man has ever seen in, the, in their life and everything is so pristine and beautiful and hungry and there's Rick over in the corner and he looks like he's lost his life he's a young man and so I decide I'll go over there and you know give him some wisdom and I go over there and <laughs> what's going on boy I said are you are you trouble I mean are you troubled is there anything in, am I trouble <laughs> what are you talking what what did you just say I said Rick it's okay no it isn't okay no this is our job this you know we can be fired tomorrow I mean he was and, and, and then you you know then you understand that he's exactly right and so now you have a friend or someone that you're that you're watching every day and you're saying to yourself, well, you don't want something bad to happen to that dude. And all of a sudden, hey, he makes sense. So, but in my job, and I say this all the time and I talk to other announcers, there is nobody in America that is treated better than I am. And I don't only say me. I mean, Rob, uh, Ralph, Westcott, our engineer, our guys are treated so well by these guys, including Elliot, who treats us incredibly well that you can't I mean <laughs> you really you know it almost is embarrassing to be honest with you. it's almost embarrassing how well we get treated so well I mean I have to keep up with your demands I mean you know when rock and roll bands go into a venue and they have a list of like you know I need two cases of water and I need this on ice and I need this you should see Larry's list I mean it's oh, yeah. unbelievable but one of the things that uh, one of the things back to Alan's question was um, when you kind of compare Coach Katie and Coach Painter, both very similar mindsets in terms of how people should be treated, but also um, like their how they treat their players. You know, it's about life lessons. It's about always being there for them, preparing them for the next you know uh, sixty years of their life. Um, what that's done, and as Larry said, 38 years, the same, basically the same mentality for 38 years. We've, we, a lot of programs talk about a basketball family and a basketball culture. And one of the reasons that we actually, I think, have a legitimate basketball family here is you've had two leaders over you know, the span of 38 years. And they've been very much uh, on the same page in terms of what's important and integrity and and doing things the right way and accountability and all that stuff has been a big deal around here. And so what you see a lot of times is, and the fact that Matt played for Coach Katie, so he knew a lot of those older players already. He played with some of them. Um, we have guys that come back all the time for practice, for games. We'll be on the road, on the road and they'll stop by for a shoot-around or a, a road game. And we immediately fall into stories, conversations, and a lot of them revolve around Coach Katie and, you know, the – a story from back when they played or things of that nature. Um, but everybody can automatically jump on the same page because there's not been, you know, there's been two coaches. And I know that having been around different programs um, that have had multiple coaches who do things differently, um, it's not always like that. You need to have a common uh, thread that holds everything together. And, uh, you know, there's so many times the players would come back and they one of the first people they want to see is you because you were around when they you know when they played so um, that part of it makes Purdue basketball very unique um, and again we've been really lucky on how uh, both coaches treat people um, you you one of the things that that Alan also mentioned was just uh, 
you know, Matt being a student of the game, Coach Katie, I think, was a student of the game too. I think most coaches, when you're in that business, that's it's all, you know, they're always constantly learning and trying to find out what other coaches are doing, and you're always adapting and things like that. I think that's a pretty common thing among uh, among most uh, basketball coaches. But Matt probably takes it to another level because he really doesn't have any hobbies. Matt's not a golfer. Matt's a Matt will follow the Cubs a bunch in the summer, but for the most part, it's recruiting. And it's his current team, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, there are guys, uh, um, Elliot knows this to be true, but there are some coaches who, for example, uh, Jim Beheim, who loves to golf. Um, um, I guess the first guy to really do it was Steve Spurrier at one time when he decided that, hey, if, if you're going to hire me as a coach, you're going to give me two hours, three hours every day to play Yeah. Uh, on the university golf course. And people said, well, you're not working. Nah, if you want me to coach, I'm, I'm going to hit the golf ball because that's how I get my relaxation. That's how I get my enjoyment. All right. And everybody kind of thinks that, the, you know, if you are golfing, um, you know, that you're not coaching. But that's really not true either because I, I've golfed enough with Coach Katie that I can tell you that uh, there's enough references to basketball in the course right. of 18 holes right. that uh, you realize that that's really not true. And, you know, and then the opportunity to meet people as you're doing it. It's not just guys going out and, you know, hitting shags and just doing everything on their own. It's usually you're with someone and enjoying yourself and competing if you do play golf. But some coaches do have some hobbies, but very few of them. But very few of them. And, uh, and all I hear from other guys in my same position is, you know, I hear a lot of the horror stories about, well, you know, if you're one minute late, you know, the guy's not going to talk to you for a week. Or if you're, right. if you, you know, I, I'll, I'll say something to somebody who's had a great deal of success. And I say, well, you know, I'm a little bit jealous of you. And he'll look at me and say, I'm a little jealous of you because you get treated day to day the way I would like to be treated day to day. And I'd trade you. So, so there's I get a lot the, of truth to that. I get a lot of that too. Uh, guys in my position who, um, you know, you may roll up to an airport and you're waiting <laughs> on the plane and all of a sudden, you know, you get that phone call and the, the the charter company that we use that manages our planes may call and say, hey, uh, your plane's going to be about 45 minutes late. Here's why, da, da, da. You know, I can say this. Anytime I ever went to Coach Painter and said, hey, here's our issue, it was always like, okay, so what do you want to do? Well, here's here's plan B. Okay. Sounds good. And that's it. And and Coach Katie, Coach Katie, I use this to this day all the time. Um, expect the unexpected. That was his yeah. favorite line. And but, he said that's just a matter of what, what happened. But when that comes from the top, that permeates everybody. It, 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 it goes down through your players, your travel party. And so then everybody's like, okay, we're fine. Yeah, we'll, now, we'll get through it. Now, on the flip side, I've had my counterparts – all the time will say these stories, and I, I'm just, I, I, I look at them like, and you're still doing this? Why? Hey, coach, uh, you know, plane's gonna be like, what the? I, and it's just, you know, a, a series of expletives, and of course, it's not the, it's not Mother Nature's fault, it's not the snow's fault, it's not the, you know, the plane's fault, it's the travel coordinator's fault, and uh, boy, life's too short to, to endure some of that. So we're, we're, we're lucky indeed in, uh, in that regard. Now, but let me tell you out there, uh, just for an addendum on this, uh, I sit real close to Elliot on all trips, and uh, if that bus is not out there, 
<laughs> I'll be one of the first to notice. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll kind of look at him and just kind of tease him a little bit. So he does get some razzing from, uh, he doesn't ever get it from Matt, but he'll get some from me. Only because I know he knows I'm. Yeah, I, I know that he's really concerned where those things are. So I don't want to, in any and way, I'm shape, teasing. or form, right. after a game, think that I had anything to do with that loss. Anything. And I every time we lose, I think that. So, um, question from Patrick. Patrick wants to know um, when it comes to recruiting, what's allowed, what's not allowed. How many uh, official visits can a recruit have to a school? Is there a limited number of times a coach can go watch? Patrick, that is a really good question. We could spend hours on that. But I'll give you the quick rundown of um, kind of how recruiting works. If you are a player, you can go on officials and unofficial visits to campuses. Now, the difference is when you go unofficially to campus or when Purdue hosts a kid unofficially, the recruit pays for everything. The only thing that we can provide is tickets to a game. And as an unofficial recruit, you get three tickets to a game, so uh, why three? They're thinking that's just, like that's two parents and him. That's the rule. Yep, yep. That's the idea. You come with your parents. You come to a game. It's on your own dime. You travel here. You park here. You buy your concessions on your own. Everything is on your dime. We can give you tickets, and then we can set up meetings for you, show you around campus, that kind of thing. We can we can do things uh, on campus. Uh, we can go eat. We can go out to eat with you. As long as you pay for your own food, we pay for ours. You have to do it within a certain mile radius of campus. So we can't go down to Indianapolis and have lunch with a kid and call it an unofficial visit. So that's kind of an unofficial visit. On an official visit, you get, as a recruit, you get five of those. So you need to pick which schools you're going to go visit. You get five official visits um, as a program. And this is always changing, so I'm not sure uh, the latest, but I think we get 12 a year that we get to host officially we can pay for everything we can pay for transportation we can pay for lodging we can pay for tickets we can pay for meals uh, we can pay for little snacks in the hotel room that kind of thing now there's a bunch of different rules on the on those official visits about some things you can't provide but that's another uh, that could go on forever uh, and and the, the visit can last 48 hours so when a kid gets to campus you put him up in a hotel room that next morning when you start the basically showing off your campus that starts the visit and then he has to be off campus 48 hours later so that's how that works and then in terms of going to watch a kid play is there a number of times a kid or times a coach can go watch a recruit play in the in the calendar year that starts in april for men's basketball we get 130 days collectively as a staff to go watch kids play now if matt painter goes to indianapolis and watches a practice at 6 a.m and then drives up or out to another town and watches a afternoon practice and then goes and watches a game that night, um, that counts as one day for Coach Painter. So he logs that, and then we keep our collectively for our staff 130 days. If all four of our guys, our coaches, go out recruiting on one day, we've used four days. And you get 130 days from April to April. So we keep track of those on a spreadsheet and log who we see. In addition to that, you can only see a player seven times during those 130 days. So it's uh, it comes down to uh, balancing how many times you're going to go see a kid. So uh, back in you know to, to reference somebody, if you're going to go up to Valpo and see Robbie Hummel or over to East Chicago and see Etwan Moore, um, you got to be kind of uh, 
strategic in terms of how many times you're going to see a kid. So you can't get up there and see every single game because you'd burn all your seven visits or seven evaluations, but you want to make sure you hit the highlights. You want to make sure you go see them in a sectional game or things like that. And you're trying to also cross-balance your schedule. Obviously, when we're playing a game, nobody on staff can go see a kid play. So a lot of it goes into it, but a very good question. And uh, that's why we have a great compliance staff here to make sure we're always up to date on those rules and following all those rules. Brian uh, wants to know um, if the current team, Larry, feels like any of the past teams. Uh, he specifically mentions the uh, some of the three-peat teams that were here. Uh, no, I don't. I don't see a lot of similarities uh, with this team other than some age. I mean. You know, we've had some teams in the past that, you know, there used to be a time when all teams got old. That doesn't happen anymore uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, the one and done has a lot to do with it in, in certain cases, but it's more than that. It's a pervasive idea that if you don't make it in a year or two that you want to transfer yeah. and get out of that program and go to another one. That's That's much more part of the landscape today than it used to be. You also have... We talked about this earlier in the show. You have X number of players that are pretty good players, and they might be like at Oakland or they might be at Belmont and Tennessee. They might be like at Tennessee State, for example, and a kid all of a sudden decides he's pretty good. He's played against some of these uh, top programs in these Power 5 schools, and he says, you know, I'm as good as those guys. Why don't I you know, find a team that I can play for like that instead right. of playing like this? Why should I have to bus? to 12 games or 15 games a year, and these guys are going like on charters. Come on. Right. I can do what that guy does. And so they, they start thinking about transferring. So it's a lot different climate in in our atmosphere, in, in our game today. But I don't see – this is the best perimeter shooting team we've had as a group. Now, we've had a lot of good shooters, but we've never had a group of shooters like this. Right. They – that you get to exploit teams with. We've never had a 7 to 290-pound center that can do the things that uh, Isaac does. We've had Joe Barry Carroll. We've had Russell Cross. We've had Steve Scheffler. Uh, we've had Jawan Johnson, who was a first-team All-American. We've had some good centers, don't get me wrong, but we haven't had a guy that has been combined with a group of shooters like we have. And we've never had a 7-3 backup center. Right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of differences with this team, and I, I just think it's I think they're kind of in their own. I think the only similarity I see is more personality-wise and not on the court. I agree with you. On the court, I think this team's very unique. Um, but personality-wise, being around these guys, I think they're very similar to um, the group of, you know, Kramer and Grant and Hummel, Moore and Johnson, that group. Um, I say that because both of those groups – have a, had a high level of maturity to them. Like sometimes I have to remind myself that these that our players are are in their teens and twenties because it sometimes doesn't feel like that. You could sit, you could take any one of our seniors. Now I'm not saying that sometimes they don't act silly like kids because they do, and and we do as well. But if uh, yeah. th but there are times that you may be on a bus or on a you know sitting in Taipei having a conversation or on our travels to Spain and you're just having a conversation with one of them, and I really have to remind myself that they're they're college guys because they have a maturity about them of a thirty, forty, fifty year old. 
So um, that, to me, is the biggest similarity. They're just kind of wise beyond their years, and I think that's one of the reasons they play the game the way they do and so well together. So Another thing, too, from my perspective is I usually attach myself to one or two players at most. You know, I, I, I stay away from most guys. I always uh, are, are nice to them and talk to them and things of that nature, but I don't. But there's always there always seems to be on certain teams or certain be one guy you know that I usually gravitate towards me or will talk more uh, uh, than some of the other players so I get to know them a little bit better and uh, and a lot of times you know that carries on for years to be honest with you I mean, and, and and ironically and a lot of people don't know this but Matt Painter was was one of those type of guys that I could talk to as a as a student. Uh, and as an announcer, and then I, I, I could get to know him. And I, I didn't stay close to Matt, but I knew his surroundings, and I knew he was attached to Bruce, and I would talk to him occasionally, and I would always see him at camps, uh, see him downtown, you know, and they'd come in, and I'd see him. And, and uh, well, trust me, trust me, uh, that, that benefited the old clues. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the funny stories was uh, they had a media guide, uh, questionnaire exactly, that they right. filled out, and right. they would put uh, like getting to know Larry Clisby, but it was for the players. So in the getting to know Matt Painter, um, one of the questions was, "Who, if you could be anybody for a day, who would it be?" Exactly. Most and, people go with Jesus or go with uh, <laughs> uh, Abraham Lincoln or you know the governor of your state or your dad. <laughs> no, uh, no, not and Matt. Matt Painter listed. Larry Clisby. <laughs> now that prompted the SID at the time for to a follow-up <laughs> to go and nuts. to go up to him and say, "Hey, uh, I think you have a typo on your questionnaire. <laughs> did, did you really mean to say Larry Clisby?" Yeah, sure did. And so, if you go back and look and reference that media guy, of course, Matt didn't. And then Matt explained. He said, "Now look, you didn't ask." Who I would like to pattern my life after? You didn't ask. You didn't ask if. I would like to be that person for the rest of my life. You asked, who would I like to be for one day? And that's that's who I'd like to be for one day. Well, it's a lot, especially in those days, it was a lot of fun to be Larry Clisby. So, <laughs> oh, maybe. Oh, man, that is fantastic. Okay, uh, next question comes from Seth. Seth wants to know if there's any chance the Crossroad Classic expands to more teams, maybe include Fort Wayne, Valparaiso, Ball State, Indiana State. Uh, Seth, I would say probably no chance, um, but you never know. Uh, I, although we do have, we have got this question quite a bit. Uh, Chris Foreman, our SID, was telling me that a lot of people were hitting him up on Twitter about that. I would say here's the reason. Um, first of all, would people come to those other games? In theory, it sounds great, and like you'd say, hey, let's have eight, let's have four games during the day. And right now, the way the crossroads works is the, the tip times are actually dictated by TV. So in, we'll, we'll take this year's, for example, in the 2017 edition of the Crossroads Classic. Uh, Butler hosted this year, so the Big East um, television package got first pick of which games they wanted to air. So this year they decided they wanted the Butler-Purdue game to air on Fox National. They wanted a noon tip to kick off their day of cover of sports. Which was great for us, uh, great for Butler. So that's how that got slotted. Now the next pick was chosen, I believe, by uh, Notre Dame's TV package, which is the ACC, and then they followed up and aired them right after our game. 
uh, it'll change next year and somebody else will get the first pick and they will come back and say, hey, we want to put you on. Let's say for argument's sake, it's ESPN. They say, hey, we want to put you on at 2.30 and then we want the other game to go on at 5. So that's why you have varying start times year to year. It's all driven by television. If you decided to go to eight or to eight teams, four games, now all of a sudden you are having to basically slot the times and start at 11, play the next game at 1.30, play the next game at 4, play the next game at 6.30 or 7 and o'clock. And plus, people, some people wouldn't want that game marketed. Right. So now all of a sudden you say, well, the Purdue-Butler uh, game is going to be at in the late afternoon and indiana Notre Dame is going to be at night. And the networks turn around and say, well, that's great, but we've got NFL football we're up against. We've got other games we want to air. So, sorry, we're going to pass. And then they end up getting aired on um, a lower platform, which then everybody's not happy about. Uh, also, too, would we, could you expect a fan to show up at 11 o'clock and watch Valparaiso Ball State and then stay around for, uh, for Notre Dame, Indiana at night? I don't know any of those answers. I would. I have a theory that that would be hard to do and a lot for people, to, a lot to ask of everybody. Now, you could also say, well, you have a morning session, you have two games, you clear the building, and you have an, after, an evening session. And I completely understand that. Um, but again, would the morning session sell enough tickets and be profitable enough to offset the cost of the building and that, and that kind and of thing? And you have the other, you have another argument here. The other argument is how are we going to match these teams up and, and, and what benefit would it be for Purdue, Indiana, to, to even have a even Because I know this. The four teams that are in it now are not splitting that gate anymore. I know that. Um, so that comes down to then if you have a – basically if you treat it as a separate event in the morning and you have your Ball States, uh, Valpos, and Indiana State, and Evansville – uh, there's a lot of teams that it would be really cool. Like on paper, it is really cool. And I'll be completely transparent. I've I've brought this up before. Um, I just don't know if there's any way to make it work, especially when you're talking about renting a building and, and all the ushers and things that go along with it. Yeah, uh, well, so, the, other, the other thing is you have to look at it from a national perspective too because that's how the TV situation is dictated. So we, being in this state... You know, you do this 25 years ago, go to it because you have these separate TV packages that probably would have jumped all over it. But in a, in, in a real case scenario, to be realistic, hey, once we start slipping from from those marquee schools from your state, eh, don't think we'll don't think we'll share. Yeah. So. But I'm I'm all I'm I, I do like the concept on paper I, I and I and I'm an Indiana state of Indiana guy that is exactly. a, has a great um, deal of pride in basketball in our state and know and that those other guys can compete so. absolutely yeah. and it's not a knock on any other program because I would love to see something of of I think what everybody's getting at it's it kind of turns into a celebration of the importance of the of the sport in our state right. and amen to that because we ha- we are uh, very fortunate to have. Um, to to live in a state. So we're backtracking a little bit there, but uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, Adam, um, uh, and our final question we'll get to is uh, because we do have a tremendous holiday party to uh, to get to, exactly. and a tremendous uh, spread that Sylvia's put together for us of cheese balls and various meats and sausages that she special <laughs> specially ordered for Larry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Adam wants to talk about the small ball lineups that a lot of college basketball is going to. And uh, he's not a big fan of the small ball lineups. And uh, 
wanted to know kind of our opinion on those and whether or not the incoming recruiting classes, um, if that ever affected those and how Coach Painter goes about it. Coach Painter's very much, uh, you know, he's still going to recruit bigs. And one thing we found with, as Larry mentioned, our success with big guys and the centers we've had in our program, one of the things that we've discovered in recruiting is that these uh, we've kind of developed a reputation of if you want to, if you're a big guy and you want to go somewhere where you want to develop your skills, uh, Purdue um, kind of rises to the top of that list, and we've been able to get in on a lot of recruits that way. So I don't think that's ever going to change uh, as long as Matt's here because I think that's a way to get in the door with some of these big guys, despite what the national trend. Well, I know that uh, I have I have no problem looking out on the floor and seeing one of those towering guys in there doing their doing their thing. It doesn't bother me in the least. Uh, the only thing that bothers me is this is this really distorted viewpoint that Purdue doesn't score the basketball. We were uh, number one in the Big Ten Conference last year. We were number one uh, finished in the Big Ten last year as the number one team. And, you know, we average uh, 84, almost 85 points a game. And, okay, there were some inflated numbers earlier. But, for example, Saturday against a, a quality team in Butler, they still, Purdue, scored 82 points. Uh, this is pretty much the norm and uh, so we're averaging 85 points a game. We're among the most uh, efficient offensive teams in the country. And, that, and this has not only happened this year. And so people say, well, you guys plod and you're slow. And uh, the I, Big Ten, it's a bruiser league. That is, that is and a that's one of the things I've been. that's one of the things I've really been uh, spending some time with, uh, Elliot, to be honest. I look at all the other teams, including in our league, by the way, and I look at their point guard and their two guard and their three guard, and I and I see I do not see this idea. Uh, for example, we have a recruit coming in next year that weighs probably 165, 170 pounds, and they think that this guy is cannot compete in the Big Ten because he's too small. And right. I look at the numbers nationally and among really good players, there is nothing that says you have to be two, three hundred pounds to play in the backcourt. You can no. be. Uh, we have a we have a five ten uh, liberally. They say five eleven, a hundred and eighty pounder. And PJ Thompson has done a pretty gosh darn good job as a as a Big Ten point guard. We have all right, now Carson six one, and he does weigh two hundred pounds. He's really put together, but he's not the norm. Most of the guys are six one, six two, one hundred seventy, hundred and eighty pounds. They look to be pretty good players to me. I, I have no tr- I have no trouble with right. that. Now, you talk about, well, strength and things of that. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you probably need to get in the weight room and be able to, you know, be able to continue to play the last five minutes of a game and be in good, you know, have good endurance and things like that. But I don't, I don't equate it to size and bulk. You talk about that points per game, and that's one of the things that comes up on the recruiting trail with our assistants a lot. And then uh, a recruit or a coach of a recruit or a parent of a recruit will reference that. And we know that they're not thinking of that on their own. That's been put in their head by somebody else that's recruiting them. And we've got a tremendous graphic that we show them, and it shows uh, our scoring rank in the Big Ten uh, since Matt's been here. And it's consistently in the top five. Uh, of recently, it's in the top one to two, maybe three in the last few years, and that that notion quickly gets dispelled. But that's that's definitely one of those um, labels that has hung around far too long and uh, is very inaccurate. So, um, one of the many things you gotta 
do and, and information you got to provide on the recruiting trail. So, well, um, we are coming to the end here of the big holiday extravaganza podcast, episode 33. Can you believe we've done 33 of these? No, but it's been a lot of fun, and we really appreciate the uh, responses. Uh, both Ellie and I get them from fans, really. We're just preparing for a game or something like that. We'll have someone come by and say, hey, I listened to this one or I listened to that one. Uh, there's a lot that we we get a lot out of it, too. Um, for example, the one that we just did with you know, with both our ex-coaches and Paul Lusk and Conzo Martin, it was great because those guys, neither one of those guys are going to open up to too many people right. too, too many times. Um, at least you're not, you know, unless you get them in a room by yourself and ask them some questions, which they would tell both of us. But rarely, I think, in a public, uh, in a public situation, I just don't think we could have got that out of them very often. So I was, I was, Agreed. Really, I was really pleased to do that. And just some really fun interviews, like the Carson Cunningham interview. So many things that I didn't know about Carson. Uh, Dave Shellhouse, uh, just out of left field, just tremendous uh, bits of knowledge that I really Mike make Bo this Bins- really fun. Mike Bo- uh, Bobinski, when he was talking about hanging out at stock car races, right. you know, I mean, that, I'm thinking, <laughs> right. what? You know, you, you get thrown these things from time to time, and it, it's it's really, really, really cool. It's been a lot of fun. We we continue to uh, plan to just keep churning them out. Um, we'll we'll get to some of our current players um, that are coming up as guests, uh, and then we're going to reach out to more former players, more people in the basketball community. I would like to encourage our listeners if you have ideas, uh, people out there, we you feel like would make for a good podcast. Never hesitate. Reach out. We've got a new email address: boilerballpodcast at gmail We'd love to hear feedback. We'd love to hear suggestions on future shows, uh, anything that uh, you might want to pass along. But as Larry said, um, I've, it's it's becoming more and more f- frequent that when I go out and, out and about at games or uh, even uh, the other day I was out to, to dinner and somebody stopped by and said, hey, I hate to bug you, but I just got to tell you, I love the podcast. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's really been rewarding to have so many people reach out to us. So continue uh, but to there do is, that. But there is, pardon me, but there is one rule. I mean, don't be like, you know, don't be like real critical of either Elliot or I. Yeah, the, I mean, yeah. we're we're only the we're only the messenger here. Exactly. Not that we have because we haven't. I just you know, but if you want to pick on us, yeah, you, don't do it. Yeah, Larry's got Larry's a very fragile human being. <laughs> fragile, thin skin. He does not take well to criticism. So maybe if you want to have uh, any critical emails. Send those to me privately. And hey, I was. Can I finish this thing with the with a story, the uh, Santa Clara story about that guy who was going to throw me out of the stadium? You remember that story? Mm-hmm. We're at Santa Clara at the Cable Car Classic, and uh, which is somewhat appropriate with the upcoming bowl. Yeah, game. they're going to play in Santa Clara. That's correct. And uh, we're there. Uh, Lanny Sego is my uh, color <laughs> announcer. And uh, this is years ago. This is Lanny's the, brother. What was his name? Spider. Spider. Okay. So we're in the 1980s, and uh, we're in the we're in the first game. There's a doubleheader. Santa Clara's playing the second game. I forget who we we're playing, but anyway, we're tearing them up. We have a good team, and we're ripping them. And right there at the end of the first half, I mean, there's like five calls that go against us right in a row. Bang, 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 bang. And so the official comes over, and he's standing right in front of me. We're right on the floor. He's right in front of me, and his back is to me. He's got his hands behind his, you know, his waist there, just standing there. So I go off on the guy. 
from Atlanta. He basically saying, I mean, Jimmy Christmas, this guy is blind. I mean, and and I and Lanny's kind of saying, okay, yeah, that's okay. Now simmer I, down. I shop. Simmer down. I mean, he's really blind. And I'm and now I'm starting to yell it. So now you can hear it in the first row. You know, I mean, the guy. I mean, you can't win a game if they got officials like this. And, uh, and I keep going, and I can see his I can see his hands twitter a little bit, and and I just don't want to stop. And now Lanny, underneath the table, he's got he's grabbing my thigh with his left hand. And he's pinching me like, shut up, don't say anything more. Well, I carried it one one sentence too far, used a few profanities in there, and all of a sudden this guy just does an about face, just like a military about face puts both hands on the table and leans down, gets his nose right in there close to me, and he says, let me tell you something. He said, I may be blind, but I am not deaf, and I just heard every word you just said. And here, let me tell you what's going to happen here. Number one, I'm going to give Purdue a technical foul. And I look at Lanny with a, my expression is like, what? Can he do that? And Lanny looks at me like, I don't know, but are we going to try to see if he does? And I go, and I look back at him, and I say, you can really do that? He said, not only will I do that, but then I will kick you out of this arena. I said, I look at Lanny, I said, come on, he, can, he can't do that, can he? So I finally, I finally straightened up, and I said, okay. I shook my head, and I said, okay. Yes, sir. You, yeah. <laughs> You'll never, you never hear a peep out of me. So, yes, sir. Thank, so two thank weeks you very later, much. Two weeks later. And, of course, you knew the rule back then, Elliot. You've heard about it. If anybody not associated with Coach Katie uh, did something that resulted in a technical foul, you are going to be banned for the program for life. And so <laughs> I thought to myself, I'll just bring us up as uh, hypothetical. So, but I didn't do it right away. It was like two weeks later or somewhere. And I said, hey, Coach, let me ask you a question. And so I said, if I was, you know, like, you know, during a broadcast, and I said something to officially he walked by, and he turned, didn't know actually who it was, and teed me up. What would you do? He looks at me, saying, "Pretty simple, man. Give you a great recommendation for your next job interview." <laughs> now, I don't um, think he actually would have done that, but he would not have been very pleased. But Lanny would have been happy. Lanny would have been like Rob Blackman, man. If I got thrown out of the arena, they would say, "All right, now." Is that why Rob is constantly encouraging <laughs> yes, you to get on the officials? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ted Valentine did look at you at the game uh, at Florida State in the ACC Big Ten Challenge a few years ago. And you were doing the same type of thing. And he turned around and he looked at you and said, Hey, buddy, this ain't my first rodeo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that was episode 33 here on the podcast. And, again, uh, thanks for everybody listening. We hope everybody has a wonderful holiday season out there. Uh, and uh, we will continue to uh, – Crank out the uh, the guest, Sylvia Booker. Uh, our thanks to her, in addition to the holiday party she's planned, but also for getting together all of our emails for today's show and for booking all the wonderful guests here on the Boilerball Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Sylvia. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Episode 33, and until next time, be curious, be informed, and be well. <laughs>